Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we're talking to contemporary artist, author, educator, and former player Aaron Maben. He's got a new book called Getting on Code. So excited to talk to Aaron Maben. Uh, living in Baltimore, doing incredible work. Talking about everything he's up to. Also, I've got some choice words about the national championship game that occurred on the men's side with North Carolina and Kansas. Some stuff rubbed me the wrong way, and I want to share it. I also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, and I got some words about this week because it is the diamond anniversary of Jackie Robinson. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet full of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0. Robinson smashing the baseball color line. So I've got some reflections on that. First, let's talk to Aaron Maven. Um, You know, I love it when we talk about books for people just to get a sense of the framing of it all and the title. So your book is called Getting on Code. What does that mean to you? Getting on code quite simply just means um, a collective consciousness that centers the group over the individual, you know, just to put it in the plainest terms possible, you know, and um, with this project, I wanted not to be a person that spent an entire book just talking about the problems that exist within our communities. You know, um, so many people do that. And the conversations that um, come from those projects always seem to be a deficit-based conversation. It always seems to be a conversation about uh, all of the negative aspects of our community, um, how we got there. um, And we already know these things. You know, we've been talking about them for generations. But one of the things that you rarely see is a project that is really geared towards finding a way to bring us closer together, finding a way to um, control the conversation in a way that's productive and leads to solutions rather than arguments, you know? Um, And with this project, I really wanted to find a way to get all uh, people in marginalized communities, specifically people of color, to be able to get on code with each other, to be able to figure out not what we disagree on, but what are the things that we can agree on in this pathway forward? And how can we find a way um, to come together now more than ever and 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 find a way to actually see 
um, these desires through to completion. You know, it's so refreshing to hear you speak about the book because so much of the political rhetoric these days are certainly around me is about hopelessness, about people feeling an absence of hope, people who diagnose the problems, particularly in black and brown communities, but are very short on solutions. So I guess that's a two-part question for you. One, what gives you hope? And two, what are you seeing out there concretely that we can build upon that you think can bring us to a better tomorrow? Um, what gives me hope is us, you know, at the end of the day, uh, whether it's media or any other form of, uh, 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 social spaces that you find yourself in nowadays, people are always talking about the areas in which we're divided. And I do think that, you know, there's a space in the discussion for pointing out that, uh, uh, those divisions in certain areas, but, I, I like to spend much more of my time focusing on how we are still connected and the things that bind us. And when you look at all of the social movements that are taking place, uh, not just in our country, but around the world, there are so many more examples of us working together and us finding ways of supporting one another and coalescing around issues that we're all passionate about. There's so many more examples of that than examples of where we're divided. But I think that the division is what's highlighted because the division gets the most clicks. The division and the uh, the, sens uh, the uh, sensationalized nature of the way that we discuss it um, benefits people that wanna keep the argument going. It benefits people that wanna maintain the status quo. Um, but I feel like it's our responsibility to push back against that to say, regardless of how many people are going to focus on the divisions and focus on the, uh, the uh, inequity within our communities, we have to have just as many people focused on the change agents that are working to make our communities better. We have to focus on the ideas that actually lead us towards sustainability. We have to focus on the people that are actually being an example, a living example of what we wanna see uh, uh, um, um, demonstrated across the spectrum from how we deal with each other to how we communicate, to how we raise our children, to how we uh, 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 reinforce our schools and our political infrastructure. All of it is connected and all of it ties back to a code that we abide by. You know what I mean? That we can choose to abide by that centers what's best for us as a collective over what's best for me as an individual. Because if I'm just focused on what's best for me as an individual, then it's easy for me to sell you out. Mm -hmm. But if I'm focused on what's best for us as a collective, then I, st I start looking at every decision that I make in my life and saying, is this what's best for us? Is this what's best for my community, for my household, for my family? Or is this just what's best for me in the short term? And I think that when we can start to think and frame our lives through that lens, all of a sudden, so many new avenues open up for us. Mm. Now, how, how thwarted do you feel in these efforts by the fact that we live, though, in this hyper-individualized, hyper-capitalistic society where kids are told from a very young age, if you're not looking out for just yourself or at most just your family, you're doing it wrong. You're coming at it from a very different approach, which is frankly, I'm more sympathetic to, which is, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. You know, we need to be able to come together if we're going to advance. But how difficult is it 
in particularly I'm asking you this, Aaron, because you are immersed with actually speaking with people, organizing with people, working with young people. How difficult is it to push against the prevailing winds that just basically says, you know, I have to get mine or else I'm lost? I mean, it's difficult. But again, I don't focus on the deficit based mindset with anything that I do. You know, if I just sit here and focus on how difficult it is, then what's the what the hell is the point of me even wasting my time doing the work? You know what I mean? Like if if this is all doomed from the beginning and people are just going to be selfish and out for themselves, then what is the point of any of this work? You know, so I don't have the luxury, you know what I mean, um, in my own personal life or or in this uh, uh, this work that I do um, to focus on how hard it is and 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 how difficult it can be. Um, I'm focused on how we figure out a way to do it regardless, because the the sad reality is as much as we like to prop ourselves up like we're living through something that's so unprecedented, it's always been this way. You know what I mean? It's always been um, forces uh, uh, systemic and otherwise that have been set against making sure that we are never able to come together collectively and focus on those things. Uh, it's people that literally have made careers over over sowing seeds of division and it's marketable. You know, it makes money. It gets clicks. It generates interest. It gets people uh, uh, sensationalized and radicalized against each other. And I just don't have the luxury of focusing on that. I have the luxury of focusing on the fact that despite there always being this, this underlying force that, that, that drives people towards individualism rather than the collective good. Um, there's also, uh, uh, almost tribal, uh, movement and nature that that fights against that, where you have people that throughout time have gone out of their way at great cost to themselves personally um, to coalesce with other people around these issues and work together to put their differences aside and figure out what's best for the collective, uh, to figure out what steps need to be taken so that our kids and their kids don't have to fight the exact same battles that we're fighting right now today. Um, so I try to focus on that side of it. I try to focus on what needs to be done. And despite uh, the uphill battle that we're fighting, um, focusing on who are the like-minded individuals that I need to be working with that refuse to be bound by those barriers and refuse to see uh, the obstacles ahead of us as something that can't be overcome. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of uh, thinkers who, who I think respect, I respect and who are pushing a way forward, you know, your book and your mindset has such a focus on knowing our history so we don't repeat it, so we can build on it, so we can learn lessons from it. Um, how are you finding that process in terms of both talking about the book and talking to young people in terms of an interest in learning that history? Well, it can't just be young people. And that's one of the things that I drive home in the book. You know, uh, in many instances, a lot of bridges between our youth and our elders have been burned uh, over time. You know, there's a huge disconnect there. Um, and that disconnect doesn't serve us as a community. Um, if anything, it serves to our detriment. You know, I talk about that in several chapters of the book when I say, um, even in the work that we do uh, in the trenches, even in this activism work, so many people um, are doing amazing work, not just in the city of Baltimore, but all throughout, all throughout the country. Um, 
they're doing this work because they're passionate about it, but they don't necessarily know who their predecessors are. They don't know who the people that trailblazed this path that were doing this same work in, you know, the 40s and 50s and 60s. You know, they don't know who those elders are. They haven't sat at their feet. They haven't gotten the wisdom of their years of experience. And because of that lack of communication and the lack of that bridge being there, they don't know where they fell short. They don't know the areas that they would have done things differently if they could go back now with a bird's eye view. You know, um, they don't know the things that they regret. They don't know the, the areas that they feel as though they could have really seen more progress if they had pushed in a different way. And the lack of that bridge and the lack of that communication between generations um, actually serves towards our detriment now because we end up repeating a lot of the same mistakes that prior generations have made without really having the opportunity to sit at their feet and learn the lessons that they had to learn the hard way through their stories. So mm -hmm. I try to make sure that I don't just sit with my youth and give them my experiences, but I sit with my elders, the ones that, that brought me into the game, the ones that, that taught me how to do this work, the ones that were laying the groundwork uh, uh, in the lanes of activism and social justice when I was still in, in swaddling clothes. And I allow their stories to inform the work that we're doing today. And I also try to connect them with the young brothers and sisters that are new and, and on the scene and passionate, but don't necessarily have the context for the history of what, what's been done in the past and how that ties into what's going on in the present. Mm. How has your, your experience, your early life, playing you know, a very intense, very high level of football, how did that shape your worldview to arrive at these current conclusions? I mean, I know your worldview has been shaped by reading, by organizing. Bro, you've were, you've written all the books on this, man. Like you know good and well. I I that's a whole that's a whole multi-hour conversation in and of itself. You know what I mean? Like you, I just you, you know it's so interesting. People come out of the football, you know, machine sometimes thinking like an Aaron Mabin, sometimes thinking in an opposite view. And I was just wondering like what lessons you drew from yeah. your through. That's um, so many, man. Um, man, so many. It, and, and, and that's why I say it's such a hard question to answer because it's hard to focus in on just a few bullet points uh, yeah. from a career that's taking you so many places and allowed you to see things from so many different perspectives. Uh, a few takeaways that I will say um, have groomed me, molded me, and, and sat with me is the element of how powerful us controlling our own narratives for ourselves can be if we choose to see the, the, the importance of it. Um, I was a part of that generation that um, that generation of athletes and NFL players that was playing as social media became what it is now. Uh, the generation before the generations before us didn't have to deal with it. The generations after us learned through our mistakes and successes how to navigate that space. Um, and before that point, 
the the element of control that um, the NFL teams and coaches and owners and all of that kind of stuff had over the players was almost absolute because the narrative was controlled from a from a media perspective. Uh, the media was going to tell whatever the narrative was that the team wanted. You know what I mean? The, the mm-hmm. players, unless you were a superstar player, rarely had a voice or any kind of platform um, to be an individual and be seen outside of their sport um, as fully, fully uh, 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 comprehensive human beings. They were just seen as a product. And with social media, it served as a vehicle that almost humanized us and gave us our own agency and how we used our platform at the same time. And a lot of people that were athletes didn't really even realize that that was happening. And some of us did. So the ones of us that, so those of us that did, a lot of us made decisions that we were going to use our platforms in a specific way. And that, um, was a problem for a lot of the people that were a part of that old establishment because it was another form of bucking against that system of control, the same control that made examples in the past of, uh, uh, of Colin Kaepernick, you know, uh, and before him of, uh, uh, Sharif Abdul, um, um, yeah, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I got well, his name okay. wrong, but yeah, exactly. The, there, there are countless examples and all of the players that I idolized growing up, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's and the Muhammad Ali's and, you know, the Jim Brown's of the world. Like, you know, those were the people that I looked at as kings, you know, because outside of their sport, they were figures that all of society could look to and say, I'm proud to, 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 to follow behind that man's lead. I'm proud to to represent, you know, the same thoughts and ideas that he's articulating. Um, there's power in that. And the NFL, um, the NFL structure realized that the same way anybody else does. And that's something that they wanted to control, you know. So, you know, fighting some of the battles on that front that I fought during my career and even afterwards and, you know, kind of walking other guys that, you know, have come through the league afterwards that have kind of reached out to me and, you know, asked me questions about different things has been something that I've learned a lot from because it's the same way in corporate America. It's the same way in academia. It's the same way in politics. You know, there's an established order of things. And anytime you have disruptors of that, whether that be political, social, or otherwise, you're going to have pushback and not just pushback, but um, organize, uh, developed efforts, you know, to subvert whatever kind of, of progress you're looking to make. And that just taught me a lot about how you have to move and, um, about how you really have to be, uh, you have to be sure you're ready to, to, to fight certain battles, man, because you can't pick and choose when, when when it's convenient for you to stand on, you know, for you to stand on your morals and it'll cost you money, it'll cost you opportunity, it'll cost you a lot of things, but it also gives you a lot back. 
And that's something that I try to remind um, a lot of guys of, especially now, you know, players have more power today than they've ever had, but they still lack organization. And without the organization, that power will never be utilized to its full potential. Boy, that that is real, real talk right there and something I think a lot of us have been wrestling with for years. Like, how do you take these individual acts of rebellion, either on the field or through social media, and turn it into a kind of collective organizing model? Well, you have to, that's part, that goes back to those bridges that I talked about between the elders and the youth, you know? Um, a lot of guys are, are fearless enough to to jump out there and and make the statement or, you know, do the act of demonstration. But then in order for you to know what the follow-up is to that, that's where your research and your study and your knowledge of how movements and, and um, um, social uh, uh, progress has been made in the past, that's where you lean on that. But a lot of people you know, not not to 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 sound judgmental. It's like you're an athlete. You've been training your whole life um, to to attain a certain status in a sport, you know. And then once you get to that level, uh, people tell you that you now are a role model. And now you have this platform where people follow behind what you say and what you do. You know what I mean? Like players didn't ask for this. But if we are going to be out here and we're going to be talking about these issues and we're going to be organizing and we're going to be protesting, then it's incumbent upon us to do some research. It's incumbent upon us to do some, um, to have some conversations with some folks that have experience in the grassroots area, that have experience politically um, and have fought these battles. So we have an understanding once we do have a platform of how to best utilize it. Yeah. And I got. I got to ask you. It's like you. You, you do come at this with so much uh, book learning. You know, it's it's not just about you know the experience of the activism or the experience of the organizing or the experience of the dialogues, but 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 actually hitting those books. If you could, if you could get folks to read a book or two, other than of course getting on code, <laughs> what what would you like people to read so they can bring more knowledge to the table? It really depends on the conversation that we're having. You know what I mean? Um, anybody that knows me knows, man, you know, sitting behind me as I have this conversation right now is about 1,500 books that are all different subjects and titles and things like that. Mm. Um, books recently that I've read that I think are timely right now, um, and I can give reasons for that, um, I'm a person that feels historically, especially when you're talking about issues of, of race, issues of social justice, issues of um, institutional, uh, 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 institutional oppression and um, um, systemic issues in this country, anything that's being banned is mm -hmm. books that we need to be running to read. Uh, so recent books that, um, that, that, that are on that docket for me that I have read recently that I think other people of color need to be running to read, 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, Critical Race Theory um, by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and several others. Um, there's a book called The Devil You Know by Charles M. Blow. I think that politically for a lot of Black people that grew up um, relatively conservative, like, like most black people do. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a misconception that all black people grow up liberals and Democrats. A lot of our 
predecessors were conservatives and were uh, Republicans and, and, and the switch to the Democratic Party was recent. But I think that when you read a book like The Devil, you know it presents um, an alternate perspective politically to some of the uh, some of the ideas that you hear regurgitated a lot. Um, uh, Charles talks about um, the idea of utilizing our political uh, our numbers uh, uh, in the South to politically take over um, um, through uh, uh, through the conservative party and um, through things that uh, uh, things that black people throughout the the history of this country have done. I think that uh, which are what are a couple other titles? Um, I think Black Boy Smile by D. Watkins is um, a book that every uh, uh, every person needs to add to their reading list right now. It's, he's uh, He's never let me down from 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 a um, from a book perspective, and I think that he's definitely a voice of this generation. And his newest project is one that everybody needs to check out. But I can talk books all day, man. If you're looking for research, man, just you know, uh, uh, hit me up outside of this, and I'll give you a whole I'll give you a whole syllabus. But those are some titles right now that I think um, are very necessary for um, for us to be going, reading, digesting, talking about and um, uh, adding to the discussion of how we look at these problems. Wow, I mean, you've been so generous with your time, but I'd love to hit you on some quick points just so we can update everybody on what you're up to. I mean, th this rec center in Baltimore that you and Tori Smith, former Baltimore Raven, uh, University of Maryland, uh, the, the rec center that you reopened really in Baltimore, can you speak a little bit about what it is and what its mission is? Yeah, man. Um, it's been it's been an amazing, amazing, amazing process for us. Um, this is something that is a couple years in the making now. You know, me and Tori have known each other for years um, as athletes, you know, playing against each other during our careers. Um, and of course, you know, with him playing in Baltimore and me being from here uh, and of course, you know, uh, the work that I'm doing here in this city being my life's work we've always had a very close relationship on that front um, that got even tighter when I was an educator in our school system. And uh, throughout all of the things that we were doing to uh, shed light on the sad realities that our schools are dealing with and to try to bring much needed resources, he was actually somebody um, that I leaned on most heavily uh, for support and for you know just getting word out about so many things that we were doing. Um, it really brought our relationship close together. And in the aftermath of me uh, being released from the school system, um, after all of the things that we had gone back and forth doing, uh, I was, of course, very upset. I was very angry. You know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to handle it a completely different way. I wrote about that at length in the book. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Tori called me. And I'm so grateful for that because he's always, you know, if I were to, uh, to describe our personalities, you know, he's the he's the Martin to my Malcolm. You know what I mean? So, you know, I'm always the the the, the militant one and how I want to respond. And he's always the calm, cool, collected one that kind of measures things out and says, well, what if we did this? And, you know, he called me and, um, you know, we were talking about just what had been going on and kind of my frustrations with, you know, the school and all of that kind of stuff. And he was like, you know, man, well, we, I understand everything that you're saying, but me and you, we've been talking about possibly, 
you know, doing something together now for some time. And what if this is an opportunity for us to actually do that? You know, what if this is really kind of a blessing in disguise and now we have a chance to do something our own way, you know, that nobody can 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 take from us, you know, um, and me and him started talking and, you know, we eventually landed on this idea that him and his wife were already in the process of working on of finding a, a, a building that we could, you know, um, turn into a rec center um, in Baltimore. And I absolutely love the idea, you know, because it would give us the opportunity to do everything that I had been doing through the schools and Chanel as well. His wife is a, a phenomenal educator um, that has uh, some great experience in her career. And, um, you know, me and her working together have been able to bring um, a lot of those different um, educational uh, uh, curriculums and um, workshops that we've been doing in the school for years to our rec center. And now we have um, uh, a space that um, instead of instead of uh, building a new spot, uh, we were able to find a space that used to be a rec center that had been closed for um, about 13 years um, that we were able to get refurbished and, 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 and updated and, and open it and open it back up. So that neighborhood who hadn't had any kind of rec center access for, you know, over 15 years now, um, now has, uh, this space, um, available to them and not just the immediate, um, neighborhood that we service, but the entire city you know, especially coming out of this pandemic, you know, so many of our kids for a couple years now have been sitting in front of a computer screen trying to learn virtually. And a lot of them did not have access, you know, to certain technology and internet access and all of that stuff. So, so many of our kids um, are in need of, of outside resources and support in order to close that gap academically. Um, that existed even before the pandemic started um, and resources like this, being able to have a space where, you know, they can come after school and get their homework done and get tutoring and get help with their school projects and um, and and learn for some kids even learn how to read because they were never taught the right way. Um, these things are important. And even the kids that that don't utilize our space just for that. Um, the fact that we have our basketball courts and our football field and all of that stuff. Now they have a safe place in that neighborhood and in that community where they can just be kids. You know what I mean? Where they don't have to worry about, we've never had a fight on our campus. Um, the first day that we walked the campus, um, I found about three or four shell casings on the ground. We haven't had any issues of violence. We haven't had any issues of, 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 um, um, arguments and, and fights like these are the spaces that we need to be able to have in our city for our kids to just be kids. And so many of those spaces don't exist anymore. And me and Tori are just of the mindset that you can't just go around complaining about these issues without being ready to roll up your sleeves and get your own hands dirty. You know, so this is our passion project, um, you know, which was what was started with you know, good intentions and a heart to serve um, has now been um, um, started to be, you know, seen and supported 
We got the Ravens and uh, Under Armour that have just jumped on as our major community partners. So they're putting up a significant amount of money each for our uh, expansion. So over the next couple of years, we'll go from being the size we are now to pretty much being the size of a school building. And knowing me, you can already figure where that's headed. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's some amazing work that's being done, man. And, and I'm just so proud uh, to be able to work with my brother, you know, and my sister, uh, Chanel, uh, you know, to who are so passionate about, you know, seeing this city rise and so dedicated towards doing it the right way. You know, I wouldn't want to do it with anybody else. Wow. What do you say to somebody who's listening to this interview right now and says, that sounds like a project I want to help with, or I want to see something like that in my community, or I live near Baltimore. Do you need help? I mean, is there any ask that comes with this kind of work where you Yeah. I mean, we, um, we obviously we're just coming out of a global pandemic where, you know, uh, we had so many restrictions. So there was so much that we, um, that we couldn't, it was so many people that wanted to help us with certain things that literally couldn't because we were restricted in who we could have in the building, how many kids we could work with, uh, who we could have, you know, along with staff and all that kind of stuff. But now that we're starting to come out of that space, um, we're, we're, we're definitely starting to lean a lot more heavily on our community for, um, for their support. So, um, if you follow myself or Tori um, on any of our social media pages, um, you follow the Level 82 um, org uh, or on any of those uh, social media pages, you'll be able to see updates about uh, every single thing that we're doing. And, um, you know, I try to, uh, to to be as vocal as possible about anything that we need support with um, whenever those situations come up. That's beautiful. And. You know, people I'm sure know about you that in addition to this kind of work that you do now, hopefully they know about getting on code, but you're also an artist of real renown. Yeah, um, yeah that's that's what pays the bills now for yeah. real. So. <laughs> Between yeah. the art and the books. Yeah, yeah, that's um, I mean, that's always been my passion. But yes, that's definitely um, that's definitely still uh, still my bread and butter. Any artwork or exhibits you can share with us coming up for the new year? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I have a couple coming up, as a matter of fact, two big ones that I'm really excited about um, that are coming up re uh, that are coming up very soon. Um, one is the end of this month. I have uh, the Art Taste event, which is at um, which is at the uh, Baltimore Museum of Industry. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll be doing a live installation um, and exhibition during that event. That event will be, give me one second, Art Taste is on April 24th, and that is from 5 to 9 p.m. Um, you can get your tickets for that at www.arttaste.org. That is at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. And I will also be um, the the the... The specifics for this information, I mean, for this event aren't out yet, but my next uh, exhibit after that will be at the Baltimore Met Gala, which oh, wow. will be in June. And that will be at the Baltimore Museum of Art, which is uh, something that I'm very excited about. Um, anybody that's from Baltimore knows uh, knows how significant of an establishment um, the BMA is here. And for us to be able to do um, 
this Baltimore Met Gala for the first time um, in a space like that, you know, featuring, um, you know, not artists, not just like, uh, not just myself, but other, um, um, other pivotal uh, uh, transformative artists here in the city of Baltimore. I'm very excited about those two events. And that is in, I mean, and that will be in June. Wow. You know, my mother-in-law who lives right outside of Baltimore is going to listen to this interview. And the first thing she's going to ask me is whether or not you're going to be running for mayor. <laughs> no, that's no, the, no, that's no, the way no. She thinks about politics. You know what I'm saying? Like to me, politics yeah. is grassroots organizing. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, uh, I'm I'm appreciative whenever people, you know, ask me those questions because I get that it comes from a place of of, of them seeing something positive that they would like to see, you know, um, emulated in a way. But um, the way I see things, man, I can get so much more done um, directly working with the people like I've been doing for over a decade now. You know, one of the reasons why I think the work connects the way it does and the way the reason I'm able to get so much done is because the people that I work with on the ground, they know me, you know, they know me for real. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I come and, you know, I ask how I can serve, they know it's not because I'm waiting for a photo op or because, you know, I want to use them as political capital. They know it's coming from a genuine place of me really just wanting to see the city rise and see our communities thrive, you know? Um, and I think that the authenticity of that is really lost once you start pandering for votes. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if you really care about changing the city, then change the city. You don't gotta be an elected, elected official to do that. And I wanna push back against that narrative. You don't, got, you don't have to be an elected official, you know, to, to improve your community, you know, to, to, to change your, your, your community for the better. All you have to be is a is a person that wants to see it done, you know, and committed to that front, you know. So um, I don't see that in my future. It's definitely not something that um, that I'm working towards, or you know, that I have uh, I have thoughts for. You know, that's it's the last thing I want to be spending my time doing. I'm, I'm completely comfortable working with our kids and our people in the trenches every single day, and 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 retreating to my studio to do my paintings and be a father to my kids and all that good stuff, man. That's my ministry. I wish I could say I could, uh, I wish I could say that we're going to bottle everything you're saying and try to get it out to people, but we kind of are with getting on code. Absolutely. Absolutely. There this, this book, this book is my first, obviously it's my sixth title. So, you know, this is not, this is not my first rodeo, but this is the first time that I've ever made an attempt to give anybody else the blueprint that I use, you know what I mean? And how I operate, not just within my community, but, you know, within myself, you know, the, the self work that I do, the way that I hold myself accountable to the things that I'm, you know, uh, uh, trying to model for everybody else. You know, um, I'm finally at a point in my life where I feel like all of those things are aligned and all of those things, um, I'm confident enough to stand on and 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 tell other people that if more of us could operate this way, I think that we would be able to get a lot more accomplished. Not saying that I have all the answers. And as soon as anybody reads this, you'll realize that one of the most powerful things about the book is the is after each chapter, the the community discussion questions that I pose that allow people not just to regurgitate my ideas, but to figure out 
what are the elements of the code that they want to live by that they decide? You know, what are the things that them and their families want to abide by? What are the things that their community needs in order to thrive? I think that that's the most powerful element of this book. The fact that it, it more than anything, will start a, a very needed community conversation that will lead us in a better direction. Yo, that, that sounds amazing. And I'm, I'm sure you are or have been doing community events around the book. Um, maybe we can get you to come up to D.C. to do something around the book. Would you do, Would you be interested in that? Absolutely. Absolutely, man. We just got to work something out. Wow, that would be that would be amazing. We, we should talk about that uh, offline. Um, one last question I got to ask you, just because I asked this to everybody, particularly of authors. But like when you were working on the book, what was your musical soundtrack, Aaron? What was getting you through? Oh, man. Either from a perspective of what you're listening to when you're writing or maybe what you're listening to when you're chilling out after writing. What got yeah, you? Yeah, that's crazy. So like... I'm 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 a music guy, so I listen to a little bit of everything when I was writing. But I mean, when I'm writing. But I think for this project, I actually was one of the first projects where, like, I really listened to not the same soundtrack, but I listened to similar music that entire time. Um, I had this uh, this um, this this playlist of 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 John Coltrane. Mm. Um, his 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 earliest stuff um you know love supreme sentimental mood you know blue train you know all of that stuff uh and i kind of mixed that with some newer uh contemporary artists uh, a guy that i'm really feeling right now is a guy named toby nguigwe who's um who's uh from um houston texas but him and his whole family they have a very brother has an old soul he's a former athlete you know, ex-football player that, like me, transitioned into his real passion. And I think that his real passion is something that's going to outlive him. And it's beautiful. So with this project being something that I wanted us to get on code with, I love the code that he abides by with his family. He's similar to myself, where, like, when you see Toby, you see his wife, you see his kids, you see his whole village. When you see me, you see my lady, you see my kids, you see my village. Like, that's the type of stuff that I want to normalize. So I think that even sonically, while I was working on this book, I wanted to be feeding myself with those vibes. Um, so that was really kind of the soundtrack that I listened to as I was writing this one. Amen to that. Well, Aaron, maybe you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate you. Uh, the book, which I, I really think I want to get this into everybody's hands, particularly here in D.C., because people need it. The book is Necessary Reading. It's called Getting On Code. Aaron Maven, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, my brother. Always a great, always a great conversation. Yeah, it always is, sincerely. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
And now I've got some choice words about the NCAA men's basketball game. Okay, look. The NCAA men's final epitomized March madness, but perhaps not in the manner that its creators intended. The game itself was a classic. Two college hoops blue bloods, the North Carolina Tar Heels and Kansas Jayhawks squaring off with Kansas engineering the biggest comeback in finals history and securing the 2022 national championship by a score of 72-69. The North Carolina team was particularly compelling. Under the leadership of first-year head coach Hubert Davis, they were in danger of not even making the tournament during a mercurial first part of the season. But they not only made it to the madness of March, they advanced to the finals by defeating arch nemesis Duke, sending their legendary coach Mike Krzyzewski into retirement. And yet, despite all of this basketball nirvana, a stench remains from the North Carolina side that no one seems to want to discuss. Davis is so likable. The team was such a plucky underdog, and they came so incredibly close that all the media wants to do is cheer their effort and move on. But the odor lingers. As the game went on, it was difficult to not feel more and more uneasy with what was on display. The Tar Heels were operating with just a six-person rotation, meaning that most of the team was reduced to cheering the players on the court. It also meant that the weight and strain of a 40-minute game would be on only six pairs of shoulders. Perhaps their most vital player, center Armando Baycott, sprained his ankle in the previous game, so it was already hurting but determined to persevere. Then in the game itself, two other players were badly hurt. First, there was sharpshooter Brady Manick, he took an unintentional elbow to the forehead that caused his head to jerk backward. Manic looked dazed but stayed in the game as officials reviewed to see if the blow was in fact done with malice. Yet even with this break in the action, there was no evidence that anyone on the coaching or medical staff checked to see if Manic had a concussion. Then there was Puff Johnson, the team six man. With just four minutes to play, Johnson dropped to his hands and knees and threw up on the court after motioning to his chest. This was terrifying to witness, bringing to mind people like Hank Gathers and Reggie Lewis, players who died after experiencing heart problems on the court. But Johnson's nausea was explained away by the announcer saying that the Tar Heel bench was telling them he had taken a blow to the stomach, although no replays were shown to demonstrate this. One might think that would be all we would see from Johnson, but he was put back in with 38 seconds left after Baycott went down with yet another twist on the same ankle he had injured two days prior. This took place after the floorboard of the Superdome actually came unglued, causing an injury that may have cost the Tar Heels the game. Baycott, after falling down, hopped to the front court before the officials called a timeout. While all this was happening, the announcers praised everyone's toughness for quote-unquote gutting it out. While toughness was shown by the players, a similar courage was not shown by the coaching staff. These are kids, and of course they are going to want to play. This is when adults need to step in and tell the young people what trainer Eddie Futch told Joe Frazier before the 15th round at the Thrill in Manila. He said, sit down, son. It's all over. No one will forget what you did here today. Futch, in the most brutal of sports, during the most brutal of fights, showed the kind of care that the North Carolina coaching staff should have demonstrated. Davis seems like an excellent coach with a heart as big as Carolina itself. 
but he had a responsibility to make sure Manic was checked for a concussion, to sit Johnson for the rest of that game, and to not let Baycott imperil an NBA future by playing on a bum ankle. Yes, I get it. This is the finals, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yes, this multi-billion dollar tournament is a far cry from amateurism. It's big business, and we all know it. But to the youths leaving all the blood, sweat, and tears and other fluids on the court, this is not a paid endeavor. More needed to be done to protect them from themselves. And failure to do so was indeed madness. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week. Stand up! It goes to Brian Flores, who is continuing, continuing his fight against racial discrimination in the coaching ranks in the National Football League. Uh, People might be aware that Brian Flores is going to be working in the NFL this year as a linebacker slash special assistant on the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, I think to me, he should be a head coach. That's obvious to most people. The reason why he's not is racism in the National Football League. Well, if you were following the news this week, Brian Flores has announced that he has a lot of receipts. He has emails. He has indications. He has other people on other teams who have sent him notes saying that they know that the Dolphins were setting him up to fail and trying to turn him to what's known in the parlance of the league as a bridge coach, usually between a failed team and a young white coach. And it's the young white coach uh, or, you know, young biracial coach in the case of the uh, uh, Miami Dolphins is usually able to succeed on the backs of the works of a black coach who is just there until the team is able to lift itself out of its morass. So that's called being a bridge coach. And it's more often than not assigned to black coaches that absolutely thankless work. And Brian Flores has receipts of people saying, yo, we're hearing all around the league that you're a bridge coach. It's the Dolphins. They're making that clear. Also, with Brian Flores, couple of other coaches, uh, Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton, um, two coaches, two coaches who are black. They are joining the lawsuit. They're joining the class action suit and saying that their aspirations have been thwarted by the National Football League. So the combination of more people joining the suit and Brian Flores making it very clear that he's got receipts and I'll throw something else on there too. Uh, Mike Malarkey, who is a white coach has come forward and said that he wants to clean his conscience out and letting folks know that, you know, when he's gone on interviews, they tell him, yeah, we're going to actually, you know, interview this black guy too. And it's basically so we can fulfill our Rooney rule requirements. So Mike Malarkey is coming forward from a white perspective about what a sham all of this is. So all of this together leads to a nice, nasty headache for Roger Goodell and the National Football League. And I got to tell you, 
would be happening to a nicer group of folks. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. Goes to Kathy Hockle, the governor of New York State, for ramming through a billion dollars in public funds to get the bills a new stadium. But, you know, this isn't the last you're going to hear me talk about this story. Believe you me. Uh, because there's also a bill that's going to be floating around the New York State House uh, once this budget deal gets through. And frankly, this might be big news by the time you're listening to this podcast that calls for public ownership of the bills for every dollar of public money that goes in to purchasing this stadium. So keep an eye out for that. That'll be very interesting indeed. It was 75 years ago that a World War II veteran named Jack Roosevelt Robinson smashed baseball's color line and officially desegregated America's pastime. A near full decade before the Montgomery bus boycotts, Jackie Robinson was a one-man civil rights movement, a living symbol in 1947 against racism, segregation, and white supremacy wherever his Brooklyn Dodgers played ball. This is why Dr. Martin Luther King would come to famously call Robinson a sit-inner before sit-ins, a freedom rider before freedom rides. But Robinson wasn't content to be merely a symbol. After retiring from the Dodgers in 1957, he became a barnstorming speaker and columnist advocating for the civil rights movement. He was fearless, crossing polemical swords with figures ranging from Richard Nixon to Malcolm X. And when speaking to audiences, he would end by saying, if I had to choose between baseball's Hall of Fame and first-class citizenship, I would say first-class citizenship to all my people. In 1958, he was lead organizer of the Youth March for Integrated Schools. The goal of this demonstration was to organize 1,000 black and white students to demonstrate at the Lincoln Memorial. They got 10,000, and its success inspired the March on Washington, where Robinson also was at the front. It was through his experience in the movements that Robinson wrestled with something that tortured him for the remainder of his life. The fact that his story of breaking the baseball color line was already being told as a triumph of overcoming prejudice through his own singular greatness, a bootstrap tale that sold a myth of a colorblind America where anyone black or white could make it in this country. Only they were willing to work as hard and be as exceptional as Jackie Robinson. It followed that the inability to meet that standard was a personal failing and nothing more. Robinson could have coasted on those laurels of being an aspirational figure, a Horatio Alger in Spikes. But he believed they had turned his story into a fable. So instead, he spent the last years of his life in a relentless battle against his own legend. As Robinson once said in a speech, all these guys who are saying that we've got it made through athletics, it's just not so. You as an individual can make it, but I think we've got to concern ourselves with the masses of the people, not what happens as an individual. So I merely tell these youngsters when I go out, certainly I've had opportunities that they haven't had, but because I've had these opportunities doesn't mean that I've forgotten. Robinson's memoir published just a week after his death spoke to this desire to fight the fiction that surrounded his journey. Its title poignantly was, I Never Had It Made. This battle by Robinson to not have his own narrative hijacked was grueling and contributed to his ill health and premature death by heart attack at age 53. Out of respect for the man and not the myth, 
his last struggle deserves to be remembered. If we want to celebrate Robinson, let's also celebrate the truth he fought to reveal, that racism needs to be challenged collectively by all of us, that we are all worthy of nothing less than first-class citizenship by any means necessary. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Aaron Maven, for joining us. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, Dave Tigabu. Thank you to all our listeners out there. Pour a little out for Jackie Robinson this week and make sure people know his actual story and not the one handed to us by Hollywood. Uh, For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.